Okay, here we go. Before we get started, uh, let me say a few things about this Russian situation with Ukraine. I've said that Russia, Syria, China, Iran, uh, they have begun to think about what they're doing. They have planned together. You know they do. They They interconnect, and so they have to... And, of course, China now is trying to get Russia not... They're trying to back Russia off a little bit because they can see the Russian economy is going to probably collapse. If the Russian economy collapses, it's a single-source system. It's natural gas. Russia is the second-largest natural gas producer in the world. If, the, if all of a sudden they can't sell their natural gas to Europe, Europe gets its natural gas from, say, the United States, which is number one producer of natural gas in the world, or some other outlet, then Russia's economy is gone because they do not have anything else. And if they destroy the Ukraine, as they're doing, they're trying to bomb the Ukraine into submission, and they may continue to do that. They're not sending their troops in because their troops are not prevailing. They're not succeeding against the Ukrainian resistance. So they're going to long-distance attack this country and try to destroy it or break it down to where it's non-functional. So now they can't utilize the Ukraine at all. And so what I'm seeing here is I see that Putin wants to take more of the he took the Crimean Peninsula because he wanted the naval bases. Now he's moving towards Odessa, as you've heard me say before. That is a fantastic seaport. He wants that port. Now he has the ability to fulfill Ezekiel 38, whether he knows it or not. And if his economy has been destroyed, I can see the hook of the oil wealth in the Middle East as something that he would be attracted to, and that could ultimately be the hook. As we said, the Israelis have biomedical engineering that no one else has. The Taiwanese have the, or the I'm sorry, the microprocessor technology uh, capability that no one has. And so you can see where China wants that microprocessor technology, and Putin, on the other hand, wants the uh, the oil reserves in the Middle East. And so both countries have the same idea: how to get wealth for themselves. That's an old age issue. So. I keep watching all of that, and Russia is preparing itself, whether it knows it or not, to, to fulfill Ezekiel 38. And then I see BA2 now, of course. We have a new sub-variant of the, uh, of the uh, Omicron, uh, what am I trying to say, the strain. And, and it looks to me like this will become somewhat... Consistent will always have some kind of gain-of-function coronavirus from here on out. That seems to be a really strong possibility. At least has to be considered. It may become endemic, and it may become less virulent, and, it, and that, all of that might happen. But if it doesn't, then uh, now we have worldwide disease, and we have all of this formation going on with the Russian, Syrian, Iranian, uh, Egypt, Saudi Arabia even, all of these, Lebanon, all of these different organizations starting to fulfill that scripture. So that's really an, an exciting thing to watch. Not much fun, but exciting nonetheless. Okay, here we go. March the 20th, 2022, lecture discussion number 167 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and Genesis chapter 15. And, well, we ended last lecture, number 166, with this indisputable relationship relationships would be better, of the two birds of Genesis 15 and the two birds of Leviticus 14. So I've got Genesis 15, two birds, and I have Leviticus 14, two birds. Can't be coincidental because coincidence is impossible when it confronts omniscience. So that can't be true. So 
Genesis 15, both Genesis 15's two birds uh, and Leviticus 14's two birds, they just just go everywhere throughout the Bible. And the most pronounced of the manifested connections are 2 Kings 5. Let me write them down. I'll get them here so that you people following along at home can don't have to rewind the tape so much. 2 Kings 5, Luke 4.27. Oops. Uh, where else am I here? Uh, Luke 15, 12 through 15. Uh, Mark 1, 40, 41. And Matthew 8, 2, 3. Okay, those are the ones that are most uh, commonly demonstrated to be connected to Genesis 15's two birds and Leviticus 14's two birds. And they, these are, the, like I said, most commonly cited because of the Leviticus 14 ceremonial ritual that, it's, that is a cleansing, and very important to know that it is a cleansing of the healed leper. And you could say not just healed, but cured so I have a cleansing of a cured person. That is what's going on in Leviticus 14. That's what the ceremonial ritual is for. That's what the priest is doing. And notice that the two birds ritual here is reserved for those lepers, again, that have not are no longer lepers, which is a fantastically interesting thing. Why do I have to cleanse somebody who is no longer sick? But that's what it is. The leper becomes eligible when he gets into a situation where he is healed or cured to have the priest, usually the high priest, perform the purification ceremony. That's what's going on here. He is no longer, uh, he no longer believes he's a leper, so he goes and has a priest come out to, to validate whether or not that's true. And, and if the priest does say, you're no longer a leper, then he can declare the leper cleansed and allow the, the leper back into Jewish society, which is what that leper wants, because he's been banned from Jewish society because of his leprosy. So Leviticus 14, 1 through 32, describes the process of all of that. And it is grueling. It is extraordinary. Certainly it's designed to be an exhausting, punishing procedure. And who is the one that told them to do it this way? That's right. If you said God, then you get a skittle and off you go. Why has God done this? Why has he made this healing, this curing, if you will, this this ceremony that, that declares that the leper has been healed, why has he made it almost, Im oh, it's just ridiculously difficult to do it. The priest had to look at those instructions and go, what in the, are we doing this? Why? This is too much work. It's brutal. So why did he do it? Why did God do that to them? That raises the most obvious of the obvious question. Why has the Lord God Almighty commanded this, placed this statute in his scripture? There's so much meaning to it. What are all these meanings? What is his purpose? All of that is the same question repeated five times. Just to reveal enough to you, to give you a, a shallow understanding, just to give you a little bit of it as best I can, because, again, it's, it's, it would take years to teach somebody this thing. The leper shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall go out of the camp because the, pre the leper can't come into the camp, right? To examine the leper. So out goes the priest to examine the leper. Think about this priest. Is he wearing an N95? Does he have some kind of outside air system? 
Uh, does he have a hazmat suit? Is he covered head to foot? Because who is he talking to? He's going to go out and examine who? A leper. If he gets the leprosy, it's highly transmissible, very contagious. If he gets that leprosy, then what happens to the priest? Is the priest interested? Hey, here's a chance to go out to see somebody who could, in fact, be infectious. But the priest goes out of the camp to examine the leper. So right there we are told that the leper is an outcast. He's a fugitive. He's untouchable, and he has been separated. And if the priest concludes, indeed, that the leper, leprosy has been healed, then the priest begins his regulatory ordinance, taking for him, who is declared to be cured, this cured, healed, cleansed man from leprosy, then he go, he go, the priest goes and gets two living and clean birds. These are birds that do not eat dead flesh. They're clean, living birds. For example, no vultures. That's very important because that's going to go back to Genesis 15. We have to have two clean birds. Okay, the priest is also together for the leper that he's about to declare either heal and clean or still unclean. See, it's up in, up in the air. So the, the, the priest also has to gather more stuff. He has to have cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop. The priest then commands that one of the birds to be slain in an earthen vessel. Can I write that on the board? I will because it's so important. The priest says one of the birds will be killed in an earthen vessel, a vessel made of earth. I, would, I could say this, couldn't I? A dust vessel. I'll give something away right there. I'll answer a question that I didn't even ask. How's that for being a professional religious person? It's amazing. So he, he commands that one of the birds has to be slain in this earthen vessel, this container. And, he, and the bird has to be slain as water is running, flowing over the bird as it's killed. So as the bird is going to be killed inside this basin, not basin, inside this container, and the water is going to run over it as the bird is being killed. So I have running, moving water pouring over a bird as it is killed. And that running, moving water is what? If the water is still, then it's possible that it can become contaminated, right? But the water is moving. What does the Bible call moving water? Living water. Living water is water that is moving. So I have living water and an earthen vessel. And the bird is killed inside of the earthen vessel and the living water. And I've barely begun. Hopefully many of you are identifying the portraits of Christ that are already concealed within this law. It's pretty obvious. The earthen vessel should just jump out and hit you. Living water should as well. Obviously Christ is the living water. Christ obviously is the highest priest. He's the one that's doing the inspection. The, I'll ask this question really fast. How many times have the priests had to do this cured leper ritual? Well, the answer, obviously, is none, none whatsoever. Yeah, it never happened. I'll prove that in a minute. But obviously, Christ is the living water, and he's the high priest, and he's the one that's going to do the examination. Is he afraid of getting leprosy? No, he's not. Duh. So the blood from the sacrificed bird now is placed on the cedar wood, the scarlet, and the hyssop uh, um, that's all involved in this, and, and then... Uh, and then the blood is put on the wings of the living bird. So the, the, I have the blood from the sacrificed bird put on the wood 
the cedar wood, the scarlet, the hyssop, and the wings of the living bird. And I need to interject here that the birds are identified as a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Now, that's probably an insignificant piece of information. Why would we have a turtle dove identified and a young pigeon? Leviticus 14.22 and 14.30. That's the same as Genesis 15.9. So Leviticus 14.22 and 14.30 says, This is a turtle dove and a young pigeon, and the birds of Genesis 15.9 are also shocked, put shock face on. Shock face, they're also a turtle dove and a young pigeon. To the surprise of no one, I hope. Anyway, the living bird now has the blood of the sacrificed bird dripping from its wings, and the leprous man is now sprinkled with the blood that is falling off of this bird onto himself. So the bird is sprinkling on the man. That's a very important piece of information that helps you identify what's going on with these two birds. One's dead and the other sprinkling blood. How does that work? And how, long, how many times is the leprous man sprinkled with the blood? Oh, guess. I will give you a hint. Seven times. The cedar wood and the hyssop was likewise dipped in the blood in the earthen vessel, having been tied together with the scarlet cord. So all of that. So are you ready to, I'm going to give you a robe. There's a leprous man out there. Go do your thing. Do this ritual. We're not even close to, to getting this thing. Why has God designed this and what does it all mean? Okay, so where are we now? If you answered the earthen vessel having been tied together, I'm sorry, the, the, the hyssop dipped in the blood also. So the earthen vessel has the blood, the hyssop is dipped inside of it, the bird is covered with it, it's still alive, and now the hyssop, I'm sorry, I have to get it right, the cedar wood and the hyssop is tied together by the scarlet cord, and I'm asking, where are we now in the Bible? If you answer Joshua 2, you get more Skittles. Yay for you. That's Rahab and the scarlet cord. So he has tied that together, Joshua 7. Rahab the harlot lives and dwells in the camp. The leper can't live and dwell in the camp, can he? He's a leper. The priest has to go outside the camp to get to the leper to examine him and risk his life if he's a priest. How many priests are going to sign up for that? Just arbitrarily. Go out and examine that guy. Here's your two birds, your scarlet cord, your hyssop, and your cedar wood. Go. I would tell you that the Pharisees are not doing this. Right? I guarantee you that the Pharisees never examined a single leper in all the time. Why would they? They don't think that way. They're evil. But anyhow, the, the Rahab, the harlot, lives and dwells in the camp of Israel. And keep in mind that Rahab, with her scarlet cord, is in the Messianic lineage, Matthew 1 through 5, or 1 5. She is a, a, from Rahab came the generation of Christ. So she is in the Messianic, the Messianic lineage, which is incredible. Okay, at this point, the leprous man is pronounced cleansed by if the leprous man is pronounced cleansed, in other words, he's gone through this, so the priest now has him shave all his hair, wash with water, and now he can return to the camp of Israel. He can go back to the camp of Israel because the priest has declared him clean. But he's not allowed to enter into his tent. He can't go into the tent 
So he can go into Israel, but he can't go back to his tent. Am I saying the word tent enough? I'm trying. He's not allowed to enter his tent for seven days. Now, you have to remember, because I did this a while back, Jude 6, the angels that left their abode, that word is also tent. In 2 Corinthians 5, 2, it carries this duality of Genesis 2, 7, but it also represents uh, the body, 2 Corinthians 5, 2. So the, the guy, though, he has been cured of his leprosy, he can go back into Israel, but he can't go back to his body, his tent. Now remember, this is a time when Israel was moving around and living in tents. And that, that Greek word is oikiterion. And it means tent or body, or abode or dwelling. On the seventh day, because he can't enter his tent for seven days, he's got to shave all the hair off of his head. Again, why is God doing this? How good are the razors back then? Any electric razors? How do you shave all the hair off your head? Shaving cream? You got some gel, maybe? Wax? My mother used to... Uh, boil this wax up on the stove all the time and then she would put it on her legs and rip it off and scream. I'm just a young boy at the time and I'm going, this is insane. What are you doing? But apparently it was commonplace because the razor burn issue, the razors were not, they rusted out and they had all kinds of issues and she didn't want to cut herself shaving so she thought this was an appropriate plan. I thought it was nuts. But anyhow, on the seventh day he shall shave all the hair off his head and his beard and his eyebrows. Wash his clothes, wash his body in water, and he shall be clean. And notice that bald head. If I have a bald head issue, where am I now again? I've gone someplace else, haven't I? I went to Second Kings 2, 23 through 25, because this is Elisha and the two female bears. And the, and the men that were trying to kill Elisha, that were hunting him down, are instead killed by those two female bears, and they scream at Elisha, you bald head. And he, of course, is very angry about that because he knew what it meant to be a bald head. What does it mean? I just told you what it means. It means you've shaved your head and your eyebrows. How come? Because you have leprosy. A while back was a lecture of the skull of... Excuse me, i got to take some water. I'm trying to go fast because I know how much I've got here. A while back was the lecture of the skull of Goliath and David's beheading of Goliath. And David taking the head of Goliath and burying it in Jerusalem at the place of the skull, which is the literal meaning of Gaul Goliath. In the Latin Bibles, it's Calveria, Calveria which we recognize um, means bald head. As it does. Calveria, Calvary, means bald head. So it's the place of bald head. Now, Elisha would know that. We would not. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm messing with the... Uh, the Jews would know that. Cert certainly a priest would know that. He would know that uh, that was post-David. He would know that Golgoliath uh, would be converted to Calvary or Calvaria. Okay, so don't, don't think I'm... Elisha, I know the timeline. 
Okay, for our purposes today, by our, I mean mine, uh, leprosy is the predominant symbol for the sin of mankind. That's what it is in the Bible. It is the overwhelming foremost symbol of sin of mankind through Adam, Romans 5.12, sin and death. The bald head is another example of leprosy being linked to the defilement, the contamination of a sinful condition. If you are contaminated with sin, then you will have a bald head. We'll get into more of that in a minute. Remember, the leprous victims had to announce themselves by shouting, unclean, unclean. We're unclean. They could not approach anybody. If they did, that was a horrifying error on their part. So they had to stand at a distance and scream, unclean, unclean, so that no one would come in contact with them. Again, I asked the question, how many Pharisees wanted to go out and, and, and examine somebody that was screaming, unclean, unclean at them? Leviticus 13.45. I realize that no one wants to hear this. But in order to acquire a functioning understanding of the two birds of Genesis 15 and Leviticus 14, it's going to be mandatory to begin with Leviticus 13. And that's just the way it is. It's the law concerning leprosy. Leviticus 13 is essentially the diagnosis of leprosy. And Leviticus 14 describes the purification of leprosy, the declaration of the healing from leprosy. The unclean has become clean. The unclean has been cleaned from a rotting disease. That's Leviticus 14. Leviticus 13 describes the rotting disease and the process of determining whether or not the diseases should be announced. It's the diagnosis again. The leprous, the, the leprous people were literally decomposing uh, uh, as they were going through what's left of their life. There's any the accompanying odor to that decomposition. Obviously, Leviticus 13 and Leviticus 14 are demonstrating the principle of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the great physician, Mark 2.17. The point is, yea, a point, Leviticus 13 is 59 verses of the priest inspecting, searching for the signs of putrefaction, putridity. That's what Leviticus 13 is, is what the priest has to do to examine somebody that is probably highly contagious with leprosy, which is an incredibly debilitating disease. And, and of course, it's not exactly inspirative reading, except that it is precisely that. It's riveting. It's breathtaking when you realize, when you recognize what God has hidden here in Leviticus 13, and, and likewise Leviticus 14. Obviously, Leviticus 13, Leviticus 14 are screaming out Jesus Christ over and over and over again. Remember, everything testifies of him, right? Testifying of the only salvation, the only resurrection, the only life, the only one who can reverse and heal, restore all of us who are inflicted, infected, if you will, by the disease of sin and death, of which leprosy is a symbol. Okay, where was I? Probably the best way to illustrate the undertaking of all of this is to read Leviticus 14.10. Try to knock out ten verses here. And again, you can't understand Leviticus 14 unless you take on Leviticus 13. So here we go. <clears throat> and on the eighth day, so the guy has gone through seven days, and now he can go into his tent. 
On the eighth day, he shall take two male lambs. Now, this, of course, is the high priest, right? Without blemish, one ewe lamb of the first year without blemish, three-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, and one log and one log of, log of oil. Then the priest who makes him clean or says he's clean shall present the man who is to be said to be clean and, and those things before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he can take him on the eighth day to the tabernacle of meeting. He couldn't come into the tabernacle, couldn't go into his tent, but now he can. And the priest shall take one male lamb and offer it as a trespass offering and the log of oil and wave them as a wave offering before the Lord that takes you to Bekirim, which is first fruits. Then he shall kill the lamb in the place where he kills the sin offering and the burnt offering in a holy place. For as the sin offering is the priest, the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering, and the priest shall put it on the tip of the right ear of him who is to be declared cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. You got all that? Anybody still awake? And the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it on the palm of his own left hand. Can't do it on the right hand. Have to do it on the left hand. Then the priest shall dip his right finger in the oil that is his left hand and shall sprinkle some of the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord and the rest of the oil in his hand. The priest shall put some on the tip of his right ear of him who is to be cleansed on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot on the blood of the trespass offering. The rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed so the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. Then the priest shall offer the sin offering and make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. Afterwards, he shall kill the burnt offering, and the priest shall offer the burnt offering on the grain offering of the, on the altar. So the priest shall make the atonement for him, and he shall be clean. But if he's poor and cannot afford it, then he shall take one male lamb as an atonement for him, as a trespass offering, sorry, to be waived, to make atonement for him, one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering of a log of oil, and two turtle doves and two pigeons. Such as he is able to afford, so one shall be a sin offering and the other a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest on the eighth day for his cleansing to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Got it? Good. We can, we can hand you your robes, give you your stuff, and go. you can start doing it. This, goes, this even goes further. It goes on for another 34 verses. Finally, ending at Leviticus 54 through 57, where it says, this is the law of leprosy. This is God's law of leprosy. Leviticus 13 is 59 verses. Leviticus 14 is 57 verses. Pack a lunch. Welcome to Genesis 15. Just so you can understand what's going on with the turtle dove and the young pigeon in Genesis 15. You have to have a command, really, to be honest with you, of Leviticus 13, Leviticus 14. That's why we never teach it in church, because no one can endure it. I know that. You can't endure it. All of you in this room, including myself, will be asleep probably within 15 minutes. But that's what we got. This is the law of leprosy. For today, we shall endeavor to persevere where we left off last week. Ecclesiastes 3:18 through 20, and Ecclesiastes 12:7, and the two birds. The body, I hope you remember, the body returns to the dust. Ecclesiastes 3, 18, 20, Ecclesiastes 12, 7. From which it came. It's a categorical statement with respect to the fundamental biblical truth that the body is a earthen vessel. It comes from the earth. That's why we have earthen vessels in Leviticus 14 and Leviticus 13. 
the life, the water that's in the, and the blood that is in the earthen vessel, the life, the living water, is not an earthen vessel. It's a disparate material. So I have two different materials. I have an earthen material and I have a water material, in case you wonder why water. Two gases that make you liquid. Work that out someday. But I have that and I have dirt, if you want to think of it that way. I have two things in that earthen vessel. So the water is not the same as the earthen vessel, is what I'm trying to say to you. I submit this is Genesis 2.7. Again, Genesis 2.7 is continuously repeated. Genesis 2.7 is an interminable, interminable verse. Interminable. Interminable. Can you say it without water? It's everywhere in Scripture. Genesis 2.7. Genesis 2.7 says, of course, as you know, I've got the body of dust and I have the breath of the spirit of life, right? Two separate, disparate material. Mankind and animals have two substances. They have earthen vessels that contain the breath of the spirit of life, the living water, if you want to think of it that way, so you can understand what Leviticus 14 is doing here. It's, it's telling you Genesis 2-7, Genesis 2-7, Genesis 2-7, Genesis 2-7. That's what it's doing. Put the living water in, in the earthen vessel. Put the body in the earthen vessel, put the body in the dust, and let the other bird go free. So you can see the two substances everywhere. Genesis 2.7, Genesis 2.7. Okay, so I, I just said mankind and animals have two substances. The earthen vessel that contains the breath of the spirit of life, the living water, two substances. How about angels? How many substances do they have? Think that through. What's your answer? Raise your hand if your answer is one. Never raise your hand here. Good move. You cannot ignore what you can. No, that's not true. You can ignore. Never mind. Ignorance is now the default position of the megachurch in this contemporary megachurch in this city, or this country, for that matter. We're the Laodicean age, so you can ignore all of the Bible if you want nowadays. All you have to do is cry and give your money. I'm, I'm digressing, aren't I? Anyway. You can certainly ignore the hyssop and the Passover lamb if you want, when one pursues the wisdom within the Leviticus 14 two-bird ordinance, but don't. That would be foolish. Because that hyssop in the Passover lamb comes into play now. Remember, we have hyssop, we have scarlet cord, and we have a, we have cedar wood. And that hyssop is incredibly important in the Passover. Because Exodus 12:21, the killing of the Passover lamb, what do I do with the hyssop there? I take the hyssop. Once the Passover lamb is killed... The hyssop is dipped into the blood of the Passover lamb, right? It's dipped into the blood of the lamb slain, Revelation 13.8. And the hyssop then places the blood, if you want to think of it that way, so the, 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 the household takes the hyssop that is soaked in the blood of the lamb that has been slain and puts it on the lintel and the door, the king studs. That's what I'd call them, but it's the doorposts. They call them doorposts. We call them king studs. We're right. We have king studs and we have tremors. But, but that's, and we have a header, but the lintel and the king studs, right? And there's a basin of blood now because the lamb is a large animal compared to a bird, so I have a large container of blood. They, they kill that lamb and drain that blood out, and that blood is now in a much larger, a bucket, if you want to think of it that way. A five gallon bucket would be appropriate. Wouldn't be that much, but it would be a lot. 
So there's a basin of blood. And the King James Version of uh, Zechariah 2.14 translates the Hebrew word used for basin as threshold. So it's the threshold of the door. And the explanation that I think is the most accurate here is the basin that's holding the blood is on the threshold. The hyssop is dipped into the basin. It, it, as it comes up, what's it going to do? It's going to get blood all over the threshold. It's going to put it on the doorpost. It's going to put it on the on the head header, right? So you're going to have four spots. And that, of course, uh, as many have pointed out for thousands of years, that corresponds to Christ on the cross. Blood in four places. Okay, so after the blood of the lamb slain, which is a Passover lamb, 13.8 Revelation, right? After the blood of the lamb slain was applied, none of those in the house could go out of the door. Go, the, we have a blood door now, John 10.7. Genesis 6.16, Genesis 7.16. God shuts them in the house. They can't go through the blood door. He shuts them in the house as he did with Noah. And you know who Jesus Christ says he is. John 10.7, he says, I am the door of the, of the ark of, the, of, of Noah. I'm that door. I'm the one that closed it, and I'm the door itself. And I am the door. No one goes to the Father except through me, the door. So that Passover assigns there to Genesis uh, uh, 6.16, 7.16. And John 10.7, of course, explains that. The symmetry of Exodus 12.22 and Leviticus 14.6 is, is incredible. It's obvious. The lamb slain, the blood of the lamb of God, the hyssop. Leviticus 16, Yom Kippur, of course. I have the blood of the bull sprinkled on the mercy seat of the ark. The priest will use his finger. He'll sprinkle the blood on the east side of the mercy seat seven times. Obviously, the east side of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant corresponds to where? That's right, the east side of the guarding place where the cherubim are guarding. The jer- i got to say this correctly. I have cherubim placed at the east side of the Garden of Eden when Adam and the woman are ejected, are banished. They're now outcasts, aren't they? They can't go in through that door because cherubim are guarding it and the flaming sword is guarding it. And uh, so you see the flaming sword and the cherubim replicating this door that blocks the fallen Adam and the woman from re-entering into the Garden of Eden or re-entering into the camp. They can't go back into the camp, can they? Because the door is blocked. The door of blood so why does God do that? Why does he, why, why this re-entry into the camp? Maybe we'll figure that out, okay? Trying to carry on. Likewise, the two goats, Leviticus 16, the goat slain, this Yom Kippur again, the goat slain and the goat upon who, which is the goat upon whom the lot fell. So they put lots in an urn, they take a lot out at the, if you give that to one goat, you take another lot out, and you give that to the second goat. The first goat gets, if it happened to be the first goat, but it's called the goat slain. That's upon whom the lot that says to slay that goat fell. Does that make sense? Hope it does. I'm going fast. And the living goat now, he's released to Azazel. And Azazel is not a place. It's not the wilderness. He's not a scapegoat. He is the living goat, the Azazel goat. Azazel is a name for Satan. Satan is in the wilderness, so I have two goats, I have two birds, one's Leviticus 14, one's Leviticus 16, and they obviously fit together. God is doing it again. Just in case you didn't understand Leviticus 13, Leviticus 14, he does it again, Leviticus 16. 
Okay, riddle me this, Batman. How shall we answer the two birds question, Genesis 15.9, Leviticus 14.22? Because there's a question there. I got a turtle dove and I got a young pigeon. How many of you say young pigeon? Raise your hand if you say young pigeon. How many of you say turtle dove? What question am I asking? Leviticus 14, there's a turtle dove and there's a young pigeon. Which one was killed? You have to figure that out. Because one of them was killed, right? And one of them was released. Which one was killed? Which one was released? And why? Was it arbitrary? Of course it wasn't arbitrary. Well, wait a minute. What about the two goats? Well, they're both goats. Well, these are both turtle doves, you'll say. Well, why are they called something different? Contemplate the question of the slain bird and the living bird while I pretend to make progress. Anyway, the living bird is covered by the blood, which is 1 John 1, 7, as I said. And it's also a song. What's the song? There's power in the blood, right? We've sung the song thousands of times. And the living bird is loosed into the open field, Leviticus 14, 7. Covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead. That bird is covered by blood that is typifying Christ and it's released into the field. And remember, Zipporah got it right. Christ is the husband of blood. Exodus 4.26. It's the theme of scripture. He's the husband of blood. That makes people mad. They'll say things all the time, especially those that have contempt for, for the Christian church, they say you're a church and the Jews as well. You're a, you're a religion of blood. They're right. We are. And Christ, it's his blood. He's the husband of blood. <coughs> Something very important to know. Proverbs 34, John 10, 30, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, Hebrews 1, 8. Hebrews 1, 8 is amazing because it really lays something out for you. The Father calls Christ something. You know what he calls Christ? The Father speaks to Christ and he calls him something. He calls him God. Oh God. So you can see the triunity is here. The mystery of the triune Godhead is never going to be understood. Never. Run from those who state otherwise. Run for your lives. So you say that every Sunday, right? Run for your lives, children. God, Preparing them to run out of churches that say they can tell you, explain to you the triunity of God. So I've trained a whole bunch of kids to run from churches. I consider that one of my... Pri- my extreme pinnacle of successes. Okay, so what's the meaning of the hyssop? The cedar wood and the scarlet cord. You got it? Can I skip that part? No, apparently not. (laughs) Okay. Obviously, infinite God, Jesus Christ, added to himself an earthen vessel that we think is finite, but be careful, because this is the triune God. We all say, well, yeah, he's, you know, i got a finite body, and I have an infinite God, and I have infinity and infinity, and of course, that we, now you've heard me say that, that you see that pattern in the New Jerusalem. I hope. I also have a 700 platform position, and a 300 and a 500. I've moved around a lot on the New City of Jerusalem. Anyway, Obviously, infinite God added to himself an earthen vessel, and we are saved by his shed blood. We are dipped in the blood that's in the basin that's the Passover lamb, because he is the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. Again, Revelation 13.8. So we are dipped in his blood. The cedar wood uh, likely traces to Psalm 104.16. 
And that's read the Hebrew reads are full of saps, the tree of God, the trees of God, Y H B H, the ineffable, unpronounceable name. Are full of saps, the trees of God, the Lord God, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted. God planted the cedars of Lebanon. What does planted mean? What does it mean when he says he planted the seeds of Lebanon? The cedars of Lebanon are the trees of the Lord God. It's his trees. He planted the trees. Now, what's he trying to say here? We know, 1 Kings 6, 9 through 37, that the cedars of Lebanon were extensively used for the Solomonic temple. That's what they built. Solomon built his temple out of, if you want to think of it that way. The boards and the beams of the temple were the cedars of Lebanon. So they went to Lebanon, they got those trees, they came back to Jerusalem, and they built the temple. The most holy place, the Holy of Holies, was floor-to-ceiling cedars of Lebanon planks. The inside of the temple was cedar carved with ornamental buds and open flowers, all cedar of Lebanon. There was no stone seen, 1 Kings 6.18. So they covered all stones up, so you couldn't see them with what? The covering is the cedars of Lebanon. The covering, let me say that again. The covering is the cedars of Lebanon. So he planted those. I get, have I answered the question now? I hope I have. All wood from the trees, uh, God's trees that he planted, covered the stones. The altar was cedar. The inner sanctuary, the most holy place, was the cedars of Lebanon, both overlaid with pure gold, 1 Kings 6.20. The whole inside of the temple was cedars of Lebanon, overlaid with pure gold, 1 Kings 6.22. That's how they built it. Cherubim. They had two cherubim sculptured. We just went to the flaming swords and they're the door to the garden and the outcasts, Adam and Eve, can't get back through that door. They can't get back into the camp, if you want to think of it that way, into paradise. But inside this Solomonic temple, we have cherubim sculpture. They were made of olive wood, 1 Kings 6.22. They're guarding the ark and they're 15 feet high. They're also overlaid with gold. Their wingspan also 15 feet. All gold, 1 Kings 6.28. So I have Cedar covering the stones, and then I have gold covering the cedar. What's God trying to say? They were in addition to the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, because they had cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. Don't confuse the two. One's 15 foot high, and it's sculpted into the wood. Somebody sculpted that into the cedar wood. And we know who it was. Hiram. I'm pretty confident that it was. But it could Solomon takes a lot of credit for this. So we have no idea his capability. Remember, he was full of wisdom. He's amazing. So we have, we have cherubim also on the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, right? But that's acacia wood overlaid with gold. But again, it portrays the hypostasis, hypostasis of Jesus Christ, a hypostatic union. His infinity, his deity covering his humanity. We have a tendency to think that his humanity is covering his deity. You can make that case, but that is not how the design seems to be here. The gold is covering the wood, not the other way around. We know that wood, he attaches himself to wood. That's a cross, doesn't he? That, that takes us into Jonah. He attaches himself to humanity. So his infinity covers his humanity. We, again, some insist that the opposite. They think that the humanity of Christ was in, thor- in authority over his, his deity. Oh, my gosh, I don't even know how to respond to that stuff, but I see it all the time. 
It's referred referred to in the theological terms as the peccable condition or the peccable view of Christ. And I consider this position to be a grievous heretical error. How's that for blunt? Christ is not peccable. He is impeccable. His deity, his godhood is preeminent at all times. And we've been over that territory too many times to count, so I'm going to leave it behind today. The point for now, Huzza, a point. The Temple of Solomon and the Ark of the Covenant are similarly constructed, gold over wood. If you were to continue in 1 Kings, you would find olive wood to be prominent, doors of olive wood, doorposts of olive wood. I didn't say Hollywood. Olive wood. So I have olive wood. It's long been the position of most commentators that the tree of life is a what? Olive tree, which explains why they call it Gethsemane. Why Christ goes to Gethsemane, the olive press, for one example. And of course, the Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah temple, Ezra 3.7, was built with cedar logs from Lebanon also. Interestingly, at least to me, is this Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah temple was nowhere near the splendor of the Solomonic temple. Not even close. Ezra 3.12, but many of the priests and Levites and head of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, it says in Ezra 3.12, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. They saw this temple, the second temple, the Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Ezra temple. They saw it and they cried. They wailed when they saw it. They were in despair because they'd seen the first temple. The second temple didn't look like the first temple. But it was still made with cedar wood from Lebanon that God had planted. It was still covered in wood that God had planted. They were the second the foundations of the second temple were misshapen in comparison to the point of a loud dismay. And Isaiah fifty two, fourteen uh, and fifty three, two through three comes here now. Christ hid his true form didn't he? His true form is Daniel 7, Revelation 1. He hid that. It's Matthew 17. He hid that. Christ hid his true identity, if you want to think of it that way. Keep in mind that the Shekinah glory left the Mosaic tent, because the tabernacle of Moses was called a tent. Why did God call it a tent? The tent of Moses. The tent of Moses, we'll say the tabernacle, both work. And the Holy of Holy, Divine Presence, the, the Shekinah glory left that and transferred to the first temple of Solomon, 1 Kings 8, 10 through 13. Let me explain that a little better. When the Solomonic temple was ready, the Shekinah glory, the pillar of cloud, that which was in the pillar of cloud, that which is inside Christ, Matthew 17, left the tent of Moses and went into the Holy of Holies in the Solomonic, Solomonic Temple. And then when that happened, Solomon spoke these words when the pillar of cloud filled the house of the Lord. This is the words that Solomon said. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house. Let me say that again. Solomon said, I have surely built you an exalted house. Then he said, don't call me Shirley. Okay, maybe he did a place for you to dwell in forever. That's what Solomon says. Let me say really fast, there is only one house of God. 
I know there's all these churches all over the place. They call themselves the house of God. No, you're not. There's only one house of God. Why? Why is there only one house of God? God must be so frustrated with the stupidity of the people in his church today. It's just, he's got to look at us and go, you guys are idiots. And of course we are. We're idiots. But some are more idiots than others. I hope. I'm not going to put much money on that. The point is, this movement of the of the filling of the Holy of Holies in the Solomonic Temple did not occur at the Second Temple. So the, the, the Shekinah glory, the pillar of cloud, the light of life did not come to the Second Temple. And that could also account for the loud weeping because that never occurred. They did not see the they did not see, they had the foundations of that temple built and they, there was no Holy Spirit there. Not, not Holy Spirit, there is no Shekinah glory there. Matthew 17, 1 through 9 reveals that the Shekinah glory, the light of life, Jesus Christ, John 8, 12, Genesis 1, 3 is inside of Jesus Christ. So we know that. He is the bright cloud. And the bright cloud, of course, Matthew 17, 1 through 9 is a triune passage. So you have to know that the the triune Godhead speaks of himself as individual, and that is absolutely correct, distinct individuals, but they're the same. So it's, it's something that we'll never understand again. So run for your lives. Okay, only one more piece to capture, and then we should be have hardly enough, barely enough to offer a conclusion and the meanings of the cedar and the hyssop tied together with the scarlet cord. Just one more little piece. And this final for today piece is Numbers 19.6. And I have a note that says, read it. So that means we can't figure it out. I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm trying to hustle. I'm looking at my clock. I think I'm going to make it. It's amazing. 19.6. Okay, so that's what we got to read. 19.5 through 6. Then the heifer. Okay, this is the one piece we need. Something really simple. It's going to be really easy. Okay, got it? Then the heifer shall be... Well, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the ashes of the red heifer. That's the one more piece we have to have. And oh, how easy can that be? Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and, guess, go for it. You can do it. Scarlet. The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire burning the heifer. Okay? So now I got Numbers 19 with Genesis 15 and Genesis 6. I'm sorry, uh, not Genesis 6, uh, uh, Leviticus 13, 14. The ashes of the red heifer is another purification process of an unclean person, this time who has had contact not with a leper but with a dead body. Contact with death. Note the red heifer is the first component of the take me of Genesis 15. The first thing he says to Abraham is take me. And the first thing that he says to take is the red heifer. So here we go. It's the first component. So we should have anticipated that the red heifer would associate with Leviticus 14.6. So the ashes, what we got here is the remains of the burning of the heifer are the foundation of the waters of purification. If you keep on reading Numbers 19.11-22. So we have to have the ashes of the red heifer in order to have the foundation of the waters of purification. And we just got through with the foundation of the temple, the second temple, the Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah temple. 
for our purposes, Numbers 19.17 becomes really important here, germane. And for an unclean person, it says, they shall take some of the ashes, ashes, ashes. I have a grandson named Asher, so it's a miracle I can say anything. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes. Notice that. some of the, How much ashes are they going to have to have? How much blood does it take to cleanse you? How much ashes do they need? And you know that they think that the container of these ashes are in the Ark of the Covenant. If we find the Ark of the Covenant, then we can purify all of the priests and all. We can do lots of stuff. And if you can purify a priest, what can you do? He can go into the, he can go into the temple. He can go into the holy place. So where was I? And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer, the red heifer, burnt for purification from sin and death, and running living water shall be put on them in a vessel. So here we go again. Same thing. Different day. Running living water shall be put on them in a vessel. A clean person now shall take hyssop and dip it into the running water, sprinkle it on the tent, the tent of the one that is unclean that had contact with death, because you can't go into your tent if you've had contact with death. The person cannot re-enter his tent. Remember, his tent is also a word for, that's the Greek word, for his body. A person, the person that has had contact with death. How many of us have had contact with death? Okay, every one of us has had contact with death. That's Adam's in Romans 5, 12 through 15, right? The person cannot re-enter his tent. He's blocked until his tent is purified. And then when the tent has been changed and purified and declared cleansed, he can go back into his tent. What is that? What have I just described? I've described the rapture of the church, the abduction of the bride. I've described resurrection, didn't I? I hope you got that symbolism. Yay. I'll give you a premature, maybe a a, a non-qualified yay. Okay, only one more piece to capture, and then we should barely, hardly have enough to offer a conclusion on the meanings of the cedar and the hyssop tied together with the scarlet cord. You might have heard that before. Probably going to hear it again. Welcome to Genesis 15. I got the time. Thank you. I got eight minutes. I can slow down. Psalm 51.7 Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Obviously the hyssop is soaked in blood or soaked in the running living waters of purification. And when it is, it becomes incredibly powerful. But it has to be soaked in it, doesn't it? Okay, one more piece to capture. Make him stop. I can hear people screaming. I had somebody's grandson. They were they were listening to me on Hi Susie from Bakersfield. They were listening to me because uh, they couldn't sleep, and I am a cure for insomnia. And the grandson was there uh, in proximity, and the earbud fell out of her ear. I put her to sleep within three or four minutes and the grandson finally woke her up. I believe that's how it went. I could be a little bit wrong, but it sounds better as a story if I do. Screaming at his mom, make him stop. Make him stop or his grandmother. So, and she actually wrote that to me. I thought that was very good. 
Okay, one more piece to capture. This is one more piece. Exodus 4.6, Numbers 12.10, 2 Kings 5.27, Isaiah 1.18, Daniel 7.9, Matthew 28.3, Mark 9.3, Revelation 1.14. There's your one more piece. Welcome to Genesis 15. Though, and that's, this piece is this. These are the white as snow references. White as snow is interlaced with leprosy. You know that because it's one of the signs of Moses. He put his hand in, brought it out. It was white as snow. The white as snow hand. Miriam became white as snow. Remember? Gehazi, Elisha's supposed servant. He had Naaman's white as snow leprosy restationed on him. And Gehazi became white as snow. And as an aside, David wrote Psalm 51.7. When he says, purify me, purge me. When he says all of that, he's referring to when he raped Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. That is the repentance of David, 51.7 of Psalms. But the whitest snow also describes the cleansing of sin, Isaiah 1.18. Though your sins be what? Yeah, but it says first, though your sins be what? Scarlet. Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson. There is our crimson worm, and now we're at, we're at Jonah, right? Now we're at the crucifixion. They shall be as wool or cord, a, a, war, a wool cord. Now, back again to Leviticus 16. The, the goat for the Lord that had to be killed had a scarlet cord around its neck. And if the cord becomes white as snow, as Isaiah 1.18 says, then the sins of Israel would be forgiven. So the cord, many times they threw the goat off of a cliff. And there was somebody at the bottom of the, oh, and they tied the cord, sorry, they took the cord off of his neck and they put it around a rock. They throw the goat off of the cliff and then there are people that are waving signs to tell the priest whether or not that cord turned white as snow. And if it did, there's a great celebration because the sins of Israel had been forgiven. And that is what Isaiah 118 is referring to. Why Isaiah 118 is a Yom Kippur verse. Uh, it's a Day of Atonement verse, and so now you know that, I hope. Anyway, where am I really? Okay, one more piece. <laughs> and then we should have hardly enough. Leviticus 13, 12 through 17, the mystery of the whitest snow. This is a really important piece. Because the whitest snow is a mystery. And if leprosy breaks out all over the skin, and leprosy covers all of the skin of the one who has the sore from his head to his foot whenever the priest looks, wherever the priest looks. So this guy is covered, right? Then the priest shall consider, and indeed, if the leprosy has covered all his body, he shall be pronounced clean. Yeah, huh, is a great question. He shall be pronounced clean if it has all turned white. He is clean. But when raw flesh appears on him, he shall be unclean. And the priest shall examine the raw flesh and pronounce him to be unclean, for the raw flesh is unclean. It is leprosy. Or if the raw flesh changes and turns white again, then he shall come to the priest and the priest shall examine him. And if indeed the leprosy sore has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. He who has the sore, he is clean. That's the mystery of the whitest snow. That's the clean, unclean, clean. Mystery of the whitest snow. What does it mean? All white as snow is clean. 
How is that going to be explained? Basic logic might dictate that if a victim of biblical leprosy, now notice how I said that, biblical leprosy, it's not Hansen's disease. Don't confuse it with the contemporary leprosy, Hansen's disease. If an infected Jew is totally, completely covered by biblical biblical leprosy, to the point where he is all white, then he is declared clean by the physician priest. Because the priest is acting like a physician, isn't he? He's going out there to say whether or not this guy's infectious. And again, who did that? Count on one hand. How many? Count on one finger. Count on nothing. How many Pharisees did that? Okay? But if he's all white, then he's declared clean by the physician priest. The priest would uh, then declare the disease to be in an inverterate state. So it's chronic. So it's full-blown. It's totality, if you want to think of it that way. Inveterate state, sorry. I started to say invertebrate. It's irreversible at that particular point. It's hopeless. But apparently when this level of contamination is reached with biblical leprosy, the diseased persons becomes non-contagious. A transmissibility has, has ceased when it's a state. But if there's some raw flesh there, uh uh-oh, that he could become contagious again. And those with this level of malignancy were able to re-enter Jewish society, including they could go and worship in the temple and beg for what? To be remembered and their sins to be cleansed. Right? Keep in mind, nobody was ever healed by this. There was never a single healed Leper, ever, cured leper, ever, except for Naaman the Syrian. Luke 4.27. How many lepers do you think there were in Israel? Over the years, how many? But none were healed until Jesus Christ cured a great multitude of lepers. Luke 5.12-15. Obviously, the connectivity of biblical leprosy to the sin through Adam is obvious. Death from sin is thought to be what? What do the atheists tell us all the time? Death is supreme. Death cannot be beaten. It's undefeated. There's no defeat for death. There's no hope. When you die, you're done. You become nothing. Nothingness. Hopelessness. Death, again, is supreme. And leprosy portrays this for Israel. Christ, however, will resurrect a great multitude out of death into eternal life, as he defines life. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. Just one example. One example of the great multitude of the first resurrection. There's five stages of the first resurrection. As you, as you know, I hope you know. And Res- Revelation 9, 7, 9 through 17 is just one example of one of those stages. I've said many times that Christ Jesus God buried the, Le- the Pharisees in Leviticus 14. He knew they couldn't cure it. They could do nothing. And I get so frustrated when people are telling me, I, I know somebody that can raise the dead. He can't raise a dead fly. Or she can't raise a dead fly. Quit. Quit it. Jesus Christ buried the Pharisees in Leviticus 14. And he cured thousands of lepers. Each one demanded their Leviticus 14 ceremony. They all went back. Thousands and thousands. A great multitude. A multitude, it says. God in the flesh was making a point. The Matthew 23, 33 children of Satan had to perform this ritual. How many times did they have to do it? 
They had to inspect all of these people that were leprous. All of them. And now none of them have any leprosy on them at all. They had to examine all of them. They had to get two birds. They had to get scarlet cord. They had to get cedar wood. They had to get hyssop. They had to do all of this stuff. Day and night, he buried them in it. It was a deluge. And they did it to the point of exhaustion, I believe. And we should investigate the entirety of Christ's intention. One quick example along with Leviticus 14 is Leviticus 13, 40 through 44, where it discusses what? Baldness. Christ wanted to make sure that all these bald people were cured. Because one of the things about leprosy, biblical leprosy, it does cause your hair to fall out. So, and that, that explains the two female bears of 2 Kings 2.23 and the four leprous men of 2 Kings 7.3-11. How many of the ten questions, and actually how many are there really? There are 11 questions. Remember I said I got ten questions I'm going to answer from lecture 165. I promise now to do it for two weeks. How many have I answered? None. The answer, once again, is none. Welcome to Genesis 15. That's what it takes. Okay.